Aucklanders, Nelsonites and basically the rest of the North Island. I hope you had a good day off because we're straight back into things today. No rest for the wicked. I'll tell you why. It is Tuesday, January 30th and it is also Parliament's first sitting date. We've got a jam-packed episode for you, so let's get into things. Kia ora, this is Newsable. I'm Imogen and this is what's worth talking about. New Zealand Defence Force personnel are headed for the Middle East. We're speaking to the Minister in Charge, Judith Collins. Parliament's back in business. We're halfway through their first 100 days, so how have they gone and what's left to do? Could Taylor Swift be the reason we finally see stronger regulations and legislation around artificial intelligence? And Nico Porteous joins us for a chat after winning silver at the Winter X Games in Aspen and doing a trick never done before at the competition. All that's coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. The outlook on the international stage is looking worrying. Intense fighting continues in Ukraine and the Israel-Gaza conflict is spilling over into the wider region. And New Zealand has been drawn into efforts to protect shipping in the Suez Canal from Houthi attacks in support of Palestinians, with the government announcing six New Zealand Defence Force personnel will be deployed to the Red Sea. When the UK announced strikes against the Houthis, Britain's Foreign Minister David Cameron warned of danger and instability in the world. So what is ahead for New Zealand's Defence Force? Well, to talk about that, we're joined now by Defence Minister Judith Collins. Kia ora, Minister. Oh, hi. Nice to see you. Minister, what are your thoughts about the possible negative outcomes for New Zealand embedding itself with the US in the effort to prevent attacks on shipping in the Suez Canal? Well, I see it's very important for us to remember that we are a country that is incredibly dependent on these shipping lines. And I think we can all think back to those very challenging times during the COVID pandemic when New Zealand's uh, shipping actually often got uh, sent off to some other place, which was more lucrative or there were issues. And what we ended up with was more cost to New Zealanders uh, or even not being able to buy what we would normally be able to buy. So from our point of view, it is very important, these shipping lanes, and New Zealand's had a long-time commitment to the Red Sea and being able to keep that open. Does the fact that three American troops have been killed in Jordan by, according to the US, radical Iran-backed militant groups in the last 48 hours or so make a difference at all to our plans to deploy? Uh, No, it doesn't. And of course, we think about the fact that these areas are often very unstable, and that is why defence is sent there, uh, not uh, another agency that uh, isn't able to uh, protect itself. So it is very important, but our people who are being sent are not going into Yemen. They are going to be working with our partners um, and friends to try to make sure that uh, any strikes Uh, on the the places that are basically sending these missiles to uh, attack merchant ships with. Why haven't like-minded countries to New Zealand, such as France and Spain, done the same here? I mean, they've talked about not wanting to inflame the situation. How do you see, think that this doesn't seem to quite match up? Well, of course, we're not France and we're not Spain, and they don't have the same supply chain issues that we have. Uh, You'll note that in the Security Council that 
it condemned the Houthis' attacks on merchant shipping in the Red Sea and that two countries that abstained, that have veto powers, are China and Russia. Neither of them did that. They abstained rather than actually vetoing. That should send a signal that other countries other than us are very concerned about their shipping lanes. I mean, the fact is, this is modern-day piracy. Uh, the merchant shippers are being put at risk, but even for New Zealanders point of view, like as in why would we be involved? New Zealand is a country that has no choice when it comes to shipping lanes and supply chains. We are at the bottom of the world, easily ignored by the shipping companies. And right at the moment, ships are having to divert around Africa, which is causing 10 to 15 days extra, which is all adding to massive cost increases. So it's in hitting every Kiwi in the pocket. Are we likely to be asked for a bigger contribution here? Could we end up sending naval vessels to the area, say? Well, I, I don't think so, but it's also that is um, very hypothetical. I think you need to, we need to just understand that we are making a contribution in a way where we can add value, and that is really uh, where we need to be doing it. The Pacific is increasingly being seen as a contested zone. Does New Zealand need to step up its defence activity in the region? Yeah, I, th- I think it's really important to remember that New Zealand plays quite a crucial role in the Pacific. And what is very important too is that our Pacific neighbours know that they can absolutely rely on us to do whatever we can to assist them, whether it's in defence or whether it's in issues around climate change that they're they're struggling with or anything else that we will always do whatever we can to assist and they know that we are a very trusted partner um, but you know clearly it's a it's an interesting geopolitical time and mm. I think we should never ever um, underestimate how um, the Pacific and those in the you know Pacific nations are often targeted by illegal fishing, Uh, They're targeted uh, by any illegal extraction of minerals, all those sorts of things. And, And it is important that we do our bit to help them as well. What is the situation with our support for Ukraine and its conflict with Russia? Would you like to see more New Zealand Defence Force involvement? Well, I think we're contributing very, very well, actually. I actually had a meeting at two in the morning our time a few days ago. (laughs) I thought, well, it's hard for me, but, you know, nothing nothing like those people on the ground, what they're having to do, just suck it up and deal with it, I said to myself. (laughs) So it's very important that we continue that. I mean, look, we've got a significant number, close to 100 people training Ukrainian troops, uh, mostly in the UK and elsewhere in Europe. But it's also very important to remember that we are, again, a long way away. So we're going to send them the best that we can and the best training. Can you see New Zealand soldiers becoming more actively involved further than this, the training that they're currently doing? Well, I don't think um, anybody is expecting that. I think what everyone is expecting is that we will do our part. And where we can do um, is we can train people to very high levels in a relatively uh, quick period of time. And of course, everything we've talked about costs money. The Ministry of Defence has a 7.5% saving target as directed by your government. Is defence going to try and cut back or are you going to push for a bigger slice of the budget? 
Well, of course, these are budget discussions um, being undertaken at the moment. Uh, clearly, defence has, uh, I've got to say, I, when I took over as minister, I was pretty shocked at what had been left in terms of uh, attrition rates, mm. which were up 30-odd percent, which I just staggering numbers, and uh, people feeling that they were not being deployed, uh, not being uh, used for what they needed to be used. Not, I don't think that the COVID uh, MIQ duty uh, made many people in defence that happy. And um, I think many people just wondered, is this what they were going to be used for? But um, I actually think that the morale is going to improve. But I also think that there are some areas where we are very much discussing around the budget. And um, and obviously, we, need, we know we need uh, certain capital items. And it's very important that we we get our numbers up. Where do you see those cuts being made? Well, that's not up for me. Is it? It's really up for the, um, the for the Ministry of Defence and the Defence Force, and they are working with our. Um, these are obviously requests put through by the Minister of Finance, and we will do our bit to make sure that we're not wasting any money whatsoever. So, and but we're also going to be very clear about the fact that we are going to need money uh, in the future to be able to rebuild our defence force that has been left in a situation that I don't think many of us could have uh, imagined. So you might push back on the cuts. <laughs> I will um, very much commit to doing my best to uh, defend defence. Defence Minister Judith Collins, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. Thank you, Imogen. If you listened to Monday's episode, you will know there are calls for Auckland Anniversary Day to be moved from January to September. I'm not going to tell you why. You're going to have to go and listen to that episode to find out. But we asked you on Instagram if you also thought the date should move. And around 70% of you said nah. It's good as it is. We love getting your thoughts and feelings on topic, so do make sure you're following NZ staff on the gram so you can vote in our polls and be a statistic we use as firm scientific newsable evidence. It's the week when the political year really kicks off as Parliament sits for the first time today. We are more than halfway through the Coalition Government's 100-day plan. So what are the priorities for the year? To shed some light on what might be in store, we're joined by Richard Shaw. Was that an accidental rhyme? A professor in politics at Massey University. Kia ora, welcome back. Nice to be back. What do you think the government's priorities are this year? Well, the government's first set of priorities, I guess, will be uh, changing the media narrative away from conversations about the Treaty of Waitangi Principles legislation and trying to get the focus back on some of the other stuff that they have remaining yet to be ticked off. From memory, there were 49 items on their list of things needing during the first 100 days. There are not a lot of days left um, in the parliamentary calendar before that 100-day period elapses, and they still have lots of those things to get through. I mean, lots of them are not, uh, they are undoing things, or they are stopping things, or they are instigating a process in which advice will be sought, or reviews will be held. So there was a lot of stuff that will be done, which is not really doing things. 
But I think that um, there has been a distraction for, from the government's point of view around uh, the ACT Party's treaty principles legislation. I'm sure we'll talk about that. And they would probably quite like to talk about some other things like the forthcoming budget. You talk about changing the narrative there. National was very clear from the get-go that even though this was part of the coalition agreement, they weren't going to support it past the first reading. And yet it's a major talking point. And now David Seymour is Associate Justice Minister solely focused on the Treaty Principles Bill. The conversation, if we can call it that, which contrary to Mr Seymour's position has been going on for perhaps the better part of 160 or 170 years uh, around the Treaty of Waitangi will never end. It's an endless conversation. I mean, that is part of its nature. It's something, something that is part of the warp and weft of our political community. So you cannot resolve a fundamental constitutional conversation like that through legislation. I don't think the government will be able to turn the volume down on this one until such time as there is a definitive position taken by the Prime Minister and the National Party to not see it past select committee. My sense is if I was looking ahead to one thing that was going to happen this year, it's for this thing to get really big on the government. And what about Waitangi? We've had two significant Māori gatherings to date so far. The Huiāmotu, Ratana, Waitangi next weekend. How do you see that playing out? Well, the government's chosen to revert to an earlier way of doing things in which the government and the opposition members come on separately. The former Prime Minister, Ardern, and Christopher Hopkins continue this. Um, all politicians came on together. So that there is a signal. I'm entirely clear what that signal is, but something is going on there. I would imagine that this will be a far more politically heated mm. Waitangi than has previously been the case. More than halfway through the first 100 days, what do you make of the first 50? How stable and productive do you think the government will manage to be this year? I think one of the things that I am interested in is how the three-party government functions when the pressure comes on. And we don't have any experience of having three parties sitting around the cabinet table. Neither of the coalition agreements contain a significant amount of detail about what happens on a regular basis to manage points of difference. I mean, that stuff tends to get cleaned up informally. Uh, It tends to get cleaned up through the cabinet committee process. You really don't want significant differences of opinion busting out in cabinet meetings. There are various ways and various points at which this government is going to come under pressure. And I'm interested in the ways in which the Prime Minister and his two coalition partner leaders manage that inevitable tension. Richard Short from Massey University, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Thanks, Imogen. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs>
So the drama of the Winter X Games and a silver medal is still to come. But do me a favour while you're here and do chuck Newsable a like or a follow wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Even those who aren't Swifties must have a sense of sympathy for Taylor Swift after deepfake pornographic images of her were shared across the internet over the weekend. X, the old Twitter, did move to take the images down, but some had already been viewed millions of times before they'd managed to do that. So how can this be stopped and will Taylor Swift be the solution? Scott Steinhardt from Reality Defender, an organisation that aims to stop deep fakes before they become a problem, is here to chat now. Kia ora, Scott. That's how we say hello in New Zealand. Hey, what's up? Uh, that's how we say hello in New York. <laughs> uh, so just quickly, how does your organisation try to stop this sort of thing happening in the first place? So we actually do stop it. Uh, uh, there's a bunch of parts to that, but we use essentially AI to catch AI. And hmm. what that means is looking at deep fakes from like a multitude of angles. You know, the Taylor Swift uh, incident was in fact a deep fake. Uh, we caught that with 90% certainty that it is a diffusion based deep fake, which is like one of just like a near infinite way of creating these types of images. You know, we work with governments, organizations, enterprises, everything from large financial institutions to media companies and just government agencies to help them detect this as it's happening or preferably before it happens. Should or could the AI in the first place have something in place that means if someone's trying to make an image like we saw of Taylor Swift over the weekend, they simply can't? The software says, nah, I'm not going to do that. So because there are like 100,000 plus ways of doing this and asking every single one of those tools and models to say, pretty please identify whether or not this is AI is logically impossible. You have like large companies that make these tools that are willing to do something like that. But then you have bad actors who spun this up on a homebrew Mm. solution where they can just pluck that, you know, watermarking technique out or put a fake one in, which renders the entire thing moot. What do you imagine happens from here? There's been rumblings, uh, Swift will take this to court. Could we end up with legislation around all of this to make it less of a game of whack-a-mole, I guess? We sure hope so. That's the only way to, you know, in in the same way that like CSAM, child sexual abuse materials, is legislated and violent imagery is, is legislated, so too should deepfakes. Actually having legislation with teeth, whether it's, you know, an international law or law, especially here uh, in, in the States, which is then usually enacted, uh, you know, worldwide. Mm. Uh, the, the important thing is, though, uh, like, and the really sad thing is it, it took Taylor Swift for people to actually start taking this seriously. Mm. I mean, exploitation of women and uh, those who present as female is, is infinitely older than the internet. And there have been a million and one cases in New Zealand, in America, elsewhere, where I would say 98 to 99% of deepfake pornography, non-consensual deepfake pornography is of women, you know, against their will. And to, you know, have legislation finally be a possibility because Taylor Swift was deepfaked on a grand stage in front of 100 million people is, you know, it's sad, but I'm glad that people are actually listening to that Mm, idea. It certainly feels like something we can't ignore anymore, right? Scott Steinhardt from Reality Defender, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. 
age 22, it's pretty epic to call yourself a two-time Winter Olympic medalist, including a gold. And now, Kiwi freestyle skier Nico Porteous has added his Winter X Games fourth medal to his collection, picking up silver in the men's ski superpipe at this year's comp in Aspen. A stunning achievement for an athlete bouncing back from an ACL injury. And Nico's here now to chat, fresh off the back of his second place win. Nico, kia ora, welcome. Kia ora, guys. Thanks very much for having me on. Stunning climb up the ladder there. You were in fifth place after two runs. You had one more shot. You obviously took it. What was going through your head? Um, I don't know. I was pretty relaxed, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I found myself in that situation uh, the last few times I've been at X Games, and um, I know that I just have to stick to my guns and uh, really just focus on what I want to do, and it's paid off. And in all three of your runs, the commentators were losing the plot because you kept doing something that they said had never been done before. Can you talk us through the trick or the move that you were doing that had everyone going, what's happening? Obviously, I can't watch the stream because I'm sort of <laughs> <laughs> providing the entertainment, but um, I think it was the carve back up the wall. Um, yeah, it's when you weren't going back to the other side. You were sticking on the same side. Yeah, yeah. Why is that so unusual? Yeah, I guess traditionally in half-pipe, you go from one wall to the other and um, about a year ago, I came up with the idea of the fact that I wanted to go two hits on the same wall and and carve on the bottom. Um, you know, I grew up racing and uh, it really allowed me to create a good base of skiing. And I just wanted to to try and do something a little different and, and um, change the sport and push the sport in a direction that, that I wanted it to go. Oh, you're obviously making the right moves. This is a discipline, of course, where you have won gold twice at the Winter X Games. Silver, though, still pretty special, bouncing back from an injury, I imagine, an ACL injury at that. Yeah, this this one feels super special. Mm. Um, yeah, with the ACL back in March of 2022 and taking the year off last year, not competing and um, just filming. Yeah, it was such a cool experience and I've learned so much and I really, really wanted to translate those learning experiences into into skiing and half-pipe and even with second, I'm I'm so so happy. Uh, it's it's really unbelievable and. Um, yeah, just really stoked. You could definitely see it on your face at the end of that last one. Uh, well done. Congratulations. Can't wait to see what you pull off next. Nico Porteous, uh, silver medalist at this year's Winter X Games. Thank you so much for taking the time to call it all. No, thank you very much for having me. And I hope they name the trick after you, Nico. The Nico. Or the Porteous, maybe. I think my vote's for the Porteous. That is Newsable for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Imogen Wells. Matewa. Was this episode of Newsable usable? Then back NZ News by making a financial contribution at stuff.co.nz support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.